You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. On my name in day when I come twelve, I gone front spear and killed a wild boar. He probably been the last wild pig on the bundle downs. Anyhow, there ain't been none for a long time before him, nor I ain't looking to see none again. He didn't make the ground shake nor nothing like that when he come on my spear. He weren't all that big, plus he look it poorly. He done the required. He turned and stood and clattered his teeth and made his rush, and there we were then. Him on one end of the spear kicking his life out, and me on the other watching him die. I said, your turn now, my turn later. The other spear's gone in then, and he were dead and the steam coming up off him in the rain, and we all yelled, Offered! That was the opening paragraph of Russell Hoban's Ridley Walker which was originally published in 1980. The novel is set in Kent, some two or three thousand years after a nuclear holocaust which has destroyed the land, plunging society back to Iron Age levels of technology. Its foundational myth, the Yusa story, grown out of the scattered fragments of ancient history, is the tale of how technological progress led to the nuclear war and the long dark age, which is referred to as bad time. After the death of his father in an accident at work, Ridley, our narrator, eventually finds himself leaving the community and heading out alone on a quest to rediscover and perhaps return to the prosperity of the ancients. The story is told in an imagined future dialect of English, which, though rugged and decayed, has its own alien poetry. Join us over the next hour while we give our thoughts and impressions of this very singular text. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to episode 12 of Shared's podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Browse. How are you doing, Rob? Oh, great, thanks, Sam. Back from the uh, wild wastes of Eastern Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Now we're plunging into another post-apocalyptic wasteland. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the second time in a row, actually, now. Maybe we just need to change, you know, we, we only focus on post-apocalyptic literature. Yeah. <laughs> there has been quite a lot of it. We did have that plan to uh, only do Nordic nautical novels. Yeah. <laughs> so we're talking today about probably the most famous book that we've covered so far on Sherd's podcast, I think, um, is Russell Hoban's Ridley Walker. How did you feel about reading this one, Rob? I always say really really enjoy all of them but this along with Zarina Zatelli's At Twilight They Return I think this this for me is is up there you know like a, a real masterpiece a different level like somehow kind of like a Iranian miniature perhaps in contrast to this huge landscape of um, Zatelli's but yeah really just I, I'm completely blown away and um, 
as soon as we finish this podcast, I'm going to be lending my copy to someone. I've been trying to push it on everyone I know since reading it. So, yeah, really, really enjoyed it. What copy have you got, by the way, Rob? I've got Picador... No, sorry, a Bloomsbury copy. The really... I'm not so into the cover. From 2012. Okay, so you've got the later one. I've got this 2002 20th anniversary edition. Ah, uh, okay. Which is a bit has a much nicer cover, I think. Yeah, I'd have to agree. This is, I think, this is probably one of the richest books we've we've looked at so far. I suppose we should say we're including it on the show because although it's pretty well known, it is extremely strange and unique. I mean, there are obvious comparisons that spring to mind for me you know books that are also written in invented dialects like this one most famously probably a clockwork orange it also made me think of william golding's the inheritors which is a really wonderful book do you know that one rob no i haven't read it i think it's the second novel he published it came out after lord of the flies and it's about the the last tribe of neanderthals trying to survive against homo sapiens and it's written in this really impressionistic style I don't know, it seems to try and construct a more overtly visual mode of thought. It's a really interesting book, I think. Oh, wow. Sounds, yeah, it sounds like something I definitely have to read. Maybe it's one for a future episode, who knows? I don't know if you've noticed things like this, Rob, but this book seems to have had a sort of, to have had its own influence on literature. Have you read Cloud Atlas at all? No, but I do know that there's that link and that David Mitchell is like a, a big supporter of, of this particular book and Russell Hoban in general. Yeah, I think he's written afterwards in certain editions, but there's a section of Cloud Atlas, I think it's called um, Slusha's Crossing, and uh, it's also set in a, in a post-apocalyptic world and written in this decayed dialect, and it's a sort of obvious homage to to this book and there's also things like alan moore's voice of the fire uh, which quite poetically attempts to reconstruct the voice of a stone age man in northamptonshire i was listening to an interview with i think Stuart lee was interviewing him and he asked him about why he decided to write the first chapter of that book in such a sort of challenging dialect and he responded it's to keep scum out of my book <laughs> <laughs> So th- this book's definitely had an, an an impact on English letters, I suppose. But yeah, I did really love the book. It's an extraordinary read. Really interesting stylistically, even through some of the challenge of reading this constructed dialect. The the voice is really compelling. It's funny as well. And there's a there's a real humanity to it, I think, that you know really keeps you gripped or maybe gripped isn't the right word but um i don't know makes it makes it that much easier to read because yeah as you've said it is is definitely challenging at times but there's something in this this main character ridley walker that i don't know it's quite quite empathetic perhaps maybe even slightly tragic as well you grow fond of him over the course of the book i kept forgetting that he's supposed to be a boy you're absolutely right you do sort of have to keep reminding yourself of that it's quite rare perhaps there might be novels where the the character might begin their life as a child but you'll always follow them through to adulthood whereas this actually is set in a very short amount of time and i suppose the you know in this in this world you're put into the lifespan is probably quite low (laughs) and so 12 becomes something you know they talk about 12 being the point where Ridley becomes a man but yeah definitely I think it the youth of some of these characters helps to explain some of what's what's going on I mean it's interesting that in this society it's never really remarked upon or it's not often remarked upon that Ridley is a boy it seems to be a sort of given that 
at the age of 12 you genuinely do become a man that you grow up very quickly it really struck me that the the character of the listener who will obviously speak about more later in his position as another 12 year old has talked about how he's just had a child and he will be replaced in his position in 12 years time when his child too becomes 12 to be 12 years old in in this society is a, is a very different thing perhaps halfway through your life or you know as the character of the listener suggests like maybe actually not not too far away from the end of your life yeah it seems like a very harsh and difficult life which i suppose is partly why you're so fond of of uh, ridley's effervescence you know uh. <laughs> so russell hoban's born in pennsylvania in 1925 to jewish immigrant parents and his father works at a, a local yiddish newspaper at the age of 18 he enlists in the army and he serves in the Philippines and Italy as a radio operator and then later works as a, an illustrator and copywriter before publishing first actually children's books. He published quite a bit more as a children's writer than he did as a writer for adults. I was wondering, Rob, did you encounter any of his stuff as a kid? You know, he published some, some books with illustrations by Quinton Blake and so on, which I thought I might have come across but I sort of looked through and I didn't recognize anything I was wondering if you I don't think I did either I can't be completely sure but no I think I think the same I'm, I'm not sure I actually did yeah which is a shame I mean I'd quite like to know how his sensibility sort of manifests itself in in these children's books but it's it's unlikely that I'm going to go back and read them <laughs> at this stage <laughs> <laughs> although I would say in reference to what we were just talking about this um 12 year old character there is i think something really beautifully captured in the kind of this point when you're old enough to have like a feeling for the world and begin to shape your place within it but yet your imagination and your curiosity isn't constrained and i think he captures that incredibly well and that feels like it really comes out in the character of of ridley walker you know i sort of grew up in the in the countryside at that age i was certainly playing lots of make-believe games we were usually with friends pretending that we were in world war Two, and we were dressed in kind of baggy army surplus clothes and just wandering <laughs> around local fields <laughs> but it did it, i must admit reading um these these passages where you know there is so much of it just walking it really took me back to these entire days spent just kind of creating this small universe. All in the shadow of this nuclear testing centre, right, this, that you had nearby. Well, yeah, absolutely. In fact, yeah, maybe um, there's more parallels than I realised. <laughs> <laughs> what is it exactly? I can't remember. Um, so, yeah, I grew up in a village called Aldermaston, and it's an st- odd place because it's um, quite a picturesque village you know it's just one road running through it and it's got the, all the usual things a pub and big village hall and then on the outskirts is this enormous the awe which is the atomic weapons establishment just kind of famous in the 70s and 80s there was uh marches you know cnd anti-nuclear marches from london to aldermaston but it is exactly what it says on the tin big um nuclear test facility and it's the sort of place that in the ruins that Russell Hoban describes you can imagine in in years to come an attempt to try and work out what 
what this place might have been, that it could develop its own mythology. That's interesting. I like those parallels for you. <laughs> Not so many for me, being originally from London, but that's the city that Hoban makes his, his home, becomes this sort of adopted city from, I think, 1967. And actually, for the, for the rest of his life, this is where he lives and works. He publishes Ridley Walker in... 1980 and it seems as though he, he has quite a quite a cult following strange enough apart from in connection with this book i don't hear his name coming up very often at all I and mean, he has certain proponents like we mentioned david mitchell earlier and will self is another big fan of his but generally in in literary discussion he's not a name that comes up i don't know if that's the same for, for you rob yeah 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 yeah. i would say absolutely the same i must admit before we read this and perhaps it's worth saying that we were both kind of reading it separately before we decided to pick it up and and look at it properly for the podcast yeah which which has happened a few times yeah absolutely yeah but yeah before before picking it up I, I didn't really know of him at all i've known about the book for a long time and some of his other books but i've never got around to reading him so he dies in 2011 of heart failure you mentioned that you read some of his obituaries rob did you find anything out about him that I, I haven't mentioned or anything interesting? I mean, I think exactly as you've said, it, it seemed like there was an awful lot in these obituaries about people who'd been really profoundly influenced. And I think that's the thing I really took away from it, is that he seems a strange writer and that people seem to have either never heard of him at all or <laughs> be completely indebted to, to this way of writing and, and these things is pulled out. I sort of feel like that after after reading this book. It, it feels like something that's going to stay with me and I'll definitely reread and be recommending to other people and kind of delving deeper into, you know, certain bits of meaning and certain bits of significance. So, yeah, I can, I can certainly understand that sentiment. There's quite an obsessive fandom for this book as well, right? Yeah. Whole, whole websites <laughs> de- devoted to annotating it, which is really admirable you know it's really interesting i'd be really glad to hear your thoughts on it because it feels like quite a hard book to categorize but in one way you could just call this science fiction fantasy i think that doesn't really do it justice in terms of what is actually going on here but there is certainly within that genre a tendency for some of these books and it seems like the more they build a fully fledged world and the more believable that world is the more they prompt this almost religious devotion to the the kind of like intricacies and the the working outs of that for me that's completely tied up with what hoban's saying within the book or what's what's going on would you want to speculate about what exactly it is that prompts that kind of devotion i mean i would venture that it's really closely tied to the to the act of reading this book itself you know i don't know that it has engendered the same kind of fandom that something like lord of the rings might have Mm. uh, where having an encyclopedic knowledge of all the lore and mythology of that book verifies your (laughs) engagement with it somehow it's not quite like that it's i suppose more because because of the fact that the book functions like a sort of palimpsest you know you're constantly being pushed to interpret it's it's a very consciously interpretive act to to read this Mm. book maybe that's why it's inspired websites and glossaries specifically devoted to it because it seems like some kind of code that has to be deciphered yeah i think that's definitely definitely true and i feel what i'm personally really interested in is um how much of this code or this these kind of layers of meaning are there 
to be interpreted or how much is to obscure and whether if they're there to obscure what it is that he's saying about that act of interpretation or that act of symbolizing or this kind of creation of mythology that's the thing that i find really really fascinating and i think it's really makes this book kind of stand up above others that maybe touch on some of these subjects yeah i mean personally i'm 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 very happy to call it science fiction or fantasy. Yeah, actually, I suppose I'm being a bit un, I'm being a bit snobbish. Or <laughs> no, <fair>. no. <laughs> no, I mean I don't view it as a as a slight. To my mind, I'm not marginalising the book by by calling it that. Mm. But it it does have very different concerns to most of the science fiction that I've I've encountered personally. I don't know so many whose focus is carrying tradition, interpretation, and memory in the, in the way that this book. I don't know other books that are concerned with those things so much that, that could be called science fiction or fantasy. Maybe that's why people don't want to consider it as part of that genre. I don't know. It's that idea that if it's good, it's not science fiction, you know, like 1984 or something. It can stand as like a really great example. And I, you know, I've read plenty of science fiction that I think is absolutely amazing. You know, bits of Philip K. Dick and... Um, I don't know, I'm sure there's, yeah. Well, last episode as a... And that, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. As a case in point. Yeah, definitely. I suppose, yeah, I was was thinking, I was getting slightly stuck in uh, popular opinions, or maybe even not popular, maybe academic opinions on those particular genres, rather than saying, actually, this is what it is, and that it stands out as uh, a really incredible example of what can be done within that genre. I put my hand in the muck. I reach it down and come up with something. It were a show figure, like the ones in the Yusa show. Wooden head and hands and the rest of it cloth. All of it gone black, and the showman's hand still in it. Cut off just a little way up the wrist. A grown-up hand, and a regular showman he'd been, because when I wipe it off you could see the callus round the head finger, same as all the Yusa showmen have. This here figure, though, it weren't like no other figure I ever seen. It were crooked, had a hump on its back, and Parper's suit in the cloth. For a while I couldn't think what it might be. Then when it come to me what it were, I couldn't hardly believe it. Yet there it were, and no mistake in it. It were a hump, and it were meant to be a hump. The head weren't like no other head I ever seen in a show neither. The face had a big nose, what hook it down, and a big chin, what hook it up, and a smiling mouth. Some kind of little pointy hat on the head, it curved it over with a wagger on the end of it. I'd been so interested in the figure and the dead hand, I hadn't been taking no notice of no one round me. I look it up, and there were that little whitey bloke, bell-knot fist, standing by the hole, and his little pinky eye on me. I felt like making the bad luck go away sign. Fist says, What's that you got there? I didn't say nothing. We weren't allowed to keep nothing we found in the digging. Sometimes they used to search us, though not always. He says, You best answer me. I said, What's that you got there? I said, When you have a look yourself. He says, All right, I will then. Give it here. Come to the edge of the hole and stuck out his hand. I put the figure in the dead hand in my pocket. Then quick I grab it fist's hand in both of mine and whirl round fast and slung him over my shoulder head first into the muck. 
I couldn't do nothing else to save my life. So as I said, the book's published in 1980 and it's set in Kent and we don't go beyond that county at all. It's quite localised. But it's Kent perhaps two or three thousand years after a uh, nuclear holocaust has kind of destroyed the land. And we join Ridley as a part of a small settlement which is mostly day labourers it seems the society appears something like iron age level or an iron age stage of development and the communities live in disparate groups defending themselves with bows and arrows yeah the society seems to gain its resources by salvaging ancient material but one of the very strange things about it is the way in which it carries its traditions and mythology which is via puppet shows which very closely resembled traditional Punch and Judy shows. It's one of the eccentricities of this book. And its foundational myth, uh, the Yusa story, is the tale of how technological progress led to a nuclear war and the long dark age, which is referred to as a bad time. And in, in Ridley's story, after, after the, de- the death of his father in an accident at work, he eventually finds himself leaving the community and heading out alone on a quest to rediscover and perhaps return to the prosperity of the ancients, those who lived before bad time. The, the way the mythology travels throughout this very constrained land is, as you say, through these puppet shows, but it also has a meaning beyond the narrative that it's given and that that meaning is pulled out seemingly at each different small local group by these uh, connection men who find the the connections in what's going and they're kind of like the the interpreters something like priests maybe yeah 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 yeah, yeah. able to find the the true meaning of what might seem fairly prosaic stories i wouldn't exactly call it religion but it's something very close to it right yeah definitely We need to say something about the the challenge of reading the book. It's certainly the obvious place to start when when talking about this. Yeah, it's, uh, I I tend to do quite a lot of my reading in the evenings, and I must admit, like, I would read like two or three pages at the very beginning, and feel like an unbearable urge to just fall asleep. Cause like, as much as I was enjoying it, it's really it's taxing. Not in terms of the content, but obviously in in terms of the language yeah it takes a while to get used to the to the language there's almost a barrier that you have to push through in order to get accustomed to it Uh, you know i found that after about three chapters i was relatively at home in understanding and understanding the language something kept coming to my mind as i was reading it i read simon armitage's translation of sir gawain and the green knight when it came out in in 2007 and there's a a passage in his introduction to the book i kept thinking about it he's talking about the readability of this original northern dialect of middle english in which the poem is written i made a note of this this passage whenever i read something by simon armitage i can't help but hear his voice in my head so maybe i'll read it in simon armitage's voice (laughs) of course To the trained medievalist, the poem is perfectly readable in its original form, no translation necessary. And even for the non-specialist, certain lines, especially when placed within the context of the narrative, present little problem. Conversely, lines such as, 
for thee wissa biaura willa wenda mi are incomprehensible to the general reader. But it is the lines that fall somewhere between those extremes, the majority of lines, in fact, which fascinate the most. They seem to make sense, though not quite. To the untrained eye, it is as if the poem is lying beneath a thin coat of ice, tantalisingly near, yet frustratingly blurred. <laughs> Sorry about that interlude, Rob. Uh, no, that was that was funny. <laughs> but to me, something about that description is really what it's like to read Ridley Walker. You know, Hoban has created this illusion of a distance in time between Ridley's voice and your own language. But this time it's you, it's the reader who remains under that thin coat of ice while Ridley's language is really alive, you know. Mm. But there's a section actually in modern English and after spending so much time with Ridley speak, this modern English feels like an imposter. It feels really strange to encounter your own native language and almost feel that it's incomprehensible at first until your brain sort of readjusts. It's quite a remarkable feat. Did you have the same reaction, Rob? Yeah, 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 completely. Like, you almost want to skip through it or hope that it ends quite quickly so you can get back into... It feels like somehow being wrenched out of this um, this world that you've become quite accustomed to. And yeah, I think I think the passage that you've just read, I couldn't agree more that it completely applies here. And I had quite the same experience that after a few chapters, you start to feel comfortable and you can read at the kind of pace you would normally read at. Sometimes you have to double back and and reread things, or you know, really really think about what something, what a particular word might mean but there is also something even pre-linguistic purely purely in just the the sounds the kind of phonetic resonance of certain words that just makes them make sense whether that's because of their similarities to words you know or, or because of some onomatopoeic reference or things like argo wargo yeah absolutely yeah they just make sense and although we've you know we've both got small glossaries in the back of our copies it can be really useful i think for for placing names of of particular towns on a map to understand where this this journey that ridley walker makes throughout the book where exactly it takes place but i think for a lot of the language it's it's kind of fun to know and it's quite fun to to delve into it but it's not necessarily necessary i think you get the force of it absolutely first time reading yeah i didn't turn to the glossary very often at all maybe a tiny bit at the start but generally, it is you can work it out on just by looking at it and its context. If I were being extremely picky, I suppose I would say that it, it's such a fantastical construction. You know, it's it's impossible to my mind that English would look anything like this in two or three thousand years. You know, yeah, when we consider yeah. the change that it's undergone in a much shorter period. But that's really not the point. I think I suppose it's more about making it feel just alien enough that it's doesn't feel like your own language but it's just familiar enough to be comprehensible and maybe on top of the language it's the book's insular mythology that adds to the difficulty of the language maybe those those two things in concert make it even more unfamiliar maybe i I can imagine that some people might be put off by that but i found it really intriguing but i think it's very cleverly done in as much as yeah this this mythology uh it's certainly in reviews of the book it's something i've read as you read it and and you begin uh as you know ridley introduces you to the mythology of this world and you start to see how things from contemporary life that we all know the knowledge of them has remained 
but it's been completely twisted over thousands of years. So the the meaning imbued with them that they they take on this mythic proportion has completely twisted them out of all. Yeah, the, 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 they're both recognisable, but the meaning they have in this particular society is completely unrecognisable. Yeah, it, remi- it reminds me of things like the word print out, which obviously is the you know the modern English printout, but but here it's yeah. it's used <laughs> to mean evidence. But yeah, there's yeah so many things like that that where yeah exactly the the technology has completely been lost, and you assume that the idea of what a printer might be is is just gone. But yet this um, this word so specific to that technology has has remained, and as you say, just just means something very different. But as the book progresses, these these one to one correspondences where you can sort of guess what things may have mean or or you can trace their history somehow become less and less viable and often the things you thought you knew are then undermined in the book the the central mythology is around this this character of Yusa who either for himself or or for this other character Mr Clever has created some technological advance which we may or may not understand as splitting the atom which has led to what we think is probably this nuclear disaster. But this character of Yusa, I always read as being USA. Yeah, I read, I thought of that as well, yeah. You know, that perhaps the piece of information that survived the nuclear holocaust was who, uh, or this nuclear war, was who was the aggressor or who was the one that dropped the bombs. So I was like, okay, Yusa equals USA. And then as the book progresses, this is all completely undermined and... Um, you realise that this this knowledge really isn't nearly as stable, or this mythology isn't nearly as stable in its pr- preservation of, of historical events as you thought it might be. And it becomes far more interesting for it, I think. It's quite often the way that the language itself works, very specifically by corruption and conflation, which is sort of one mode in which language actually does progress, you know, in reality. But this almost seems to, to isolate that particular mode of change. And so you're right, yeah, USA becomes a corruption of maybe USA, I, I thought of that. And Jesu maybe as a Christ yeah. figure, and obviously Eustace, the, the Saint Eustace, that becomes sort of pivotal in the novel later on. But I was also thinking of Yusa uh, as well, if we're going to... Because there seems to be an awful lot of language in here which seems to be taken from computer technology information technology so yeah i was also thinking about user you know i read certain papers about how this language was constructed and so on and it seems to be the general consensus that he hasn't used historical linguistics as a source or anything like that although it might feel like it a little bit and i had the impression that he hadn't really even paid great attention to the sort of regional specificities of you know modern kentish dialect and in fact i was i was telling you rob i conducted an experiment with some of my british colleagues i mean there aren't that many of them where where i work but i i showed them the opening passage and asked them to guess where the language came from and without fail they all said that it was west country and that's the accent undoubtedly that I had rolling around in my head as I as I read the book and probably would explain that that's why I'm, I read the passages that way but one thing that we can certainly say is that it's undeniably British right which is quite an impressive thing to do for an American writer even even if he had been living in the country for over 10 years at the point it feels distinctly British doesn't it this voice don't you think and to have tapped into the things that he does um 
yeah, this this very British way of speaking, but also the all these elements of um, particularly British kind of like folk culture, mythology, and the way that intertwines with psychogeography and and a lot of other things that are going on culturally at the time. I mean, for me, this is this is really at the pinnacle of of so much of that. Really, one of the best examples I can think of. Maybe the kind of objectivity of of someone that comes to it as an outsider is helpful, but the knowledge and the kind of deftness that he manipulates all of this with is is really really amazing. I read an article called "Dialect, Graphalect, and and Story" by R. D. Mullen. Quite an interesting breakdown of the language, and it picks up on sort of key phonological changes like the simplification simplification of consonant clusters and then consonant shifts the most frequent being d to t which does actually echo genuine changes in germanic languages the loss of unstressed syllables and intrusive r's etc so there are genuine consistencies to be noted in the in the construction of the language but i think what's much more interesting is not how the language is put together an analysis of it but it's placed as a tool for for ridley and i think it's really interesting that over the course of the book we sort of witness this growing expansion of ridley's mind he's witnessed to certain revelations even as he lacks the the means to ex- express them as he would like to i mean i don't think that ridley is unintelligent at all we're dealing seemingly with a largely illiterate culture and uh ridley's ability to write sets him apart from you know an awful lot of the of the people and also i think helps explain why as a 12 year old he perhaps seems older than or as old or on a par with with some of his older peers the workers uh, the diggers things like this at the um the society that he lives in he seems to kind of hold his own and i wonder if that's part of it that his his ability to write and his place as this connection man sets him apart so yeah i think it definitely seems i think an intelligent he's certainly learning and his his uh, experience of the world is certainly limited yeah maybe a naivety is probably a better word than unintelligent in a strange way he did remind me of a character like um Wojtek. do you know that Georg mm. Buschner play that wonderful german 19th century play there's a reading of that text in in george steiner's the death of tragedy uh where he compares Wojtek and king lear and I thought it was really interesting, so I'll just read you what he writes. He says, The style of Lear's agony marks a ruinous fall, that of Wojtek a desperate upward surge. Lear crumbles into prose, and fearing a total eclipse of reason, he seeks to preserve within the reach of his anguish the fragments of his former understanding, and his prose is made up of such fragments arrayed in some rough semblance of order. Wojtek, on the contrary, is driven by his torment towards an articulateness which is not native to him. He tries to break out of silence and is continually drawn back because the words at his command are inadequate to the pressure and savagery of his feeling. And I know it's not exactly the same situation for Ridley because it's not necessarily his own linguistic scope that is at fault, but maybe the greater tragedy of the fact that the range of expression available to him in the entire lexicon of his native language isn't sufficient for the the kinds of thoughts that he's having. I mean, does that sound like going too far, Rob? I mean, I'm thinking of the way that the weight of this ancient prosperity kind of weighs down upon this society, knowing that knowing that they aren't as advanced. You know, Good Party says, Ridley, we ain't as good as them before us. 
we've come way way down from what they've been time back way back but i did also feel that there's a certain dual thing going on that yeah there's obviously so many of the the characters of the book including ridley himself at points strive towards a reclamation of this previous glory that they still have some weird twisted knowledge of and then the the physical remains but equally what for me makes him so human and and so relatable is this struggle to present something ineffable his way with metaphor simile and and anything else to be able to try and capture some of his experiences which seem at base very human particularly uh i loved this the the metaphor he uses when he meets good parley and good parley begins to give him more knowledge and he he thinks of his head or his his own thinking in terms of the uh, the ripples in water when a stone hits it and the ripples just go out and out and out seemingly to nothing these things are really beautiful you know at this at this point it feels like he's describing something quite fundamental it doesn't matter so much that there are these limitations of language he's able to fashion within that language these kind of kernels of of something very true a sort of a functionally poetic language maybe some of ridley's sort of philosophical and historical concerns can't be expressed as he would desire to express them maybe maybe this language is too decayed to deal with them in a very practical way but no i i absolutely agree there's a sort of poetry to it there's even like a sort of delight in the language just for its own sake it might be the first time that ridley encounters some of these old machines and he can still feel the the power of them but he's he's just describing the landscape and the weather really he says there we were then in in amongst the broken stones the green rot and the number creeper with with the rain all drenching down and peltering on them dead stones stumps and stannins spattering on crumbled concrete and busted burk and dirdling in puddles gurgling down the runnels of the dead town you know it's just it's so rich just in terms of sound you know this clusters of alliteration and it just seems so delightful and i think that's maybe the counterpoint perhaps to because um, i would certainly agree that ridley seems slightly constrained by the language here and that's um a constraint which is apparent in the whole society but equally there's this thing of um this early language perhaps reflecting society which is by necessity much closer to the kind of like highs and lows of its of its surrounding the the kind of like <laughs> impending danger that they all feel but also the things that they you know the joy they can take from the experience and that yeah there's maybe perhaps less of a gulf between word and thing and that that comes out in the the kind of like onomatopoeia and the um the way that these words have shaped themselves almost in a physical reflection of of the things that they attempt to capture that for me is what is really one of the the standout things about the the language really really amazing and that yeah that passage you just read i think captures it amazingly well I think undeniably the language does represent a, a corruption in, in many cases, right? Particularly evident in the place names when Folkestone becomes Forkstone, Faversham becomes Father's Ham. It's really similar to the way that the stories are retold. The use of story actually is a kind of 
corrupted retelling of the the tale of St. Eustace in the, the Catholic and Orthodox traditions and there are parallels we can make between them you know the image of this stag comes up in both stories and saint eustace sees a cross between the stag's antlers and verse eight of the eustace story reads on the stag's head stood the little shining man the adam in between their horns with arms outstretched between their horns it's the same image but it's transformed and corrupted just enough to be perhaps not immediately recognizable and it the understanding that the society takes for it is com- completely different from, you know, a Christian reading. There's there's no such thing as Christianity any longer. Where, I thought where it was really evident is that passage where we get the, the modern English and we have, I think it's the description of a painting of St. Eustace that was actually in Canterbury Cathedral, I think is the accompanying description of that. And Good Parley sort of interprets that text for Ridley and proceeds to misread Every single line of it. Uh, <laughs> to great comic eff- effect, I think. It's really hilarious and, like, incredibly well done. I was going to say, my, I think my favourite misreading in there is of the word Hamlets. Yeah. Do, you remember, do you remember what he says? Yeah, the, the, small, the small pigs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> But it has an accompanying tragedy as well, I think, the sort of the misreadings, especially when we consider what it, what it leads to in the book. You know, when it's interpreted as a chemical formula or something. On the one hand, it is a, it is corruption, but there's as much creation in meaning as there is corruption, maybe. How this book has, has been poured over and um, real attempt to uncover all the different meanings. And, and I think you're absolutely right in saying that it's it, the book prompts you for it. And uh, even within the, the way the characters speak, it, it certainly prompts you to try and uncover that meaning. There's something that Good Parley says not long, in fact, after that section where he, he reads the myth of St. Eustace, or, like, he reads his own formula <laughs> into it. And then Ridley produces this uh, punch puppet that he's found. And we hear about how Good Parley, in fact, knows this punch puppet and, and talks about it. And they begin debating what the what the meaning of the of this whole thing is. Good Parley even says, like, I don't know... Oh, maybe I should do the voice. I don't know if I can do it. Um, Have a go, mate. <laughs> Come on, I've made a fool of myself right. already. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course, yeah. Yeah, so they're, they're talking about this punch show and the punch show ends with a song. And Ridley asks where the songs come from and what it means and uh good Polly says i don't know nothing about that song it's only about something else which everything else is in it <laughs> and this is um <laughs> you know that this this kind of desire for, <laughs> that's really good that that everything has a further meaning and obviously for us this is um this is hilarious and you know this this bit about the hamlets <laughs> as little pigs is is definitely I think the the best one in the book, but there's so much of it where these these misinterpretations are, are really hilarious. But in terms of what has happened to the book as like this literary object, I wonder what Hoban would make of it, or you know whether he he did actually see the beginnings of this. I don't know because it seems to me that what's going on here is that perhaps he's suggesting that this the search for meaning can be important it can be not be important that there's actually the thing 
that needs to happen is a questioning of the of the motives as well. And with this character of of Good Parley, he's completely twisted the legend of Saint Eustace to fit this other information that he has, which turns out to be a, a recipe for gunpowder, which seems to be quite symbolic of of just kind of this quest for for power it's just the latest of uh, this is a really i think a really interesting relationship with technology that runs throughout the book you can see quite clearly the stages of technology that the society itself is has recently gone through a transition moving from a forager to a much more steadied you know farming communities and that's spoken about by good parley quite specifically when he talks about how you know there's not enough room to forage in inland anymore that <laughs> they need you know they can be far more efficient if they start farming and then the technology you know if you want to talk about it in the broadest term the technology of fire the way that that has its own mythology that the uh, the first finding of fire and then yeah this the way the book ends slightly with the the finding of the latest technology which is gunpowder for me it's it's not necessarily an anti-technological you know there's it's not like a luddite but there's a there's a questioning behind the motives of what's going on here and i find that really really interesting especially with as we said the way that the the language of technology is is one of the things that's been preserved and changed or or corrupted the way that odd things are described as uh, bleeps or blips yeah and there's this section in the in the user myth that i really love in terms of um talking about technology when it it says sometimes biting sometimes bit and that that corruption of of like a a language of how how computers work in terms of information storage being transferred to yeah this very physical how how that translates into the society that we find ourselves in with Ridley it's, it's really interesting I think it's really curious that you bring up motive in the sort of hermeneutic acts that that go on here like quite often the misinterpretations seem to come out of a place of just naivety or, or ignorance rather than any kind of malign intent even good party seems to be on a sort of quite genuine quest of his own to read beyond what what has been passed down read beyond the consensual meaning of the use of myth rather than any megalomaniacal intentions i don't know there's obviously a desire to kind of like lift society out of this iron age existence given that there's the evidence of something much greater even if it's completely misunderstood yeah that there's the kind of information you know the recipe for that buried within everything and that it just needs to be uncovered but it's what happens with that information once it's discovered and that's i think it feels slightly what for me what what was the kind of undercurrent of what was going on here that yeah there's definitely a certain naivety and that yeah perhaps intention is a bit strong but it's uh the what's not being questioned is exactly what happens to this information once it's let loose and that's perhaps a question that needs to be asked before the fact rather than afterwards the character of the listener and these user people who see themselves as direct descendants of those who previously had power are they all deformed rob are they all like suffering some radiation mutation or something like that is is that what is implied i suppose that that implies that in some way they're the direct descendants of those who were 
affected those who who just about survived and it's yeah of course it's never quite explained because also it seemed to me that the way that the character of the listener changes in our eyes through Ridley's understanding of him that he is first seen as a as a friend and this kind of like fellow moon brother they're the same age and they work out they're born very close together if not on the same day and then realizes that perhaps his motives aren't all that innocent either and he you know again becomes Ridley's Ridley's relationship with him completely flips funny feeling come on me then I felt like that power were a big old father I wanted it to do me like grands are done good part I wanted it to come in me, to come hard and strong, long and strong. Let me be your boy, I thought. Standing on them old broken stones, it felt like it were coming into me then, and taking me strong. It felt like it were the hand of power, clamped on the back of my neck. I felt the big old father spread me and take me. I felt the power in me, I felt strong with it, and weak with it both. And still I felt another way green rot sweating on the old grey broken stones all round me a number creeper growing on the rubble I know at Cambry Centre been flattened the worst of all the dead town centres it been zero ground it been where the white shattered stood up over everything yet underneath the zero ground I listened up swarming it were a humming like a million of bees it were like tens of millions. I'd begun to feel all juicy with it. Juicy for a woman. Longing for it hard and heavy. Standing ready. Not just my cock. But all of me, it were like all of me were cock. And all the world a cunt and open to me. The dogs begun running round me. All in a circle, round and round. With their little heads up high. And their high shoulders up. They begun running on their hind legs. The sky were black, stones gone white, the dogs gone all different shining colours, and the white stones shining through them. I tried to hold it like that, but I lost it. I weren't man enough right then. I could boy for the other, but I couldn't man for her what has her womb in Cambry. We've said that religion doesn't exist as such in this society. I mean, there's certainly a mythology. And I couldn't really decide whether I thought of it as a as a very rich or incredibly impoverished mythology. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I was thinking about the way that mythologies build on things from history and things from the past. And I suppose it's very rare that you'll have a society in regression like this, especially such an enormous regression, that will be picking up the pieces of a far more technologically advanced society and attempting to fit them into a mythology which must fit with the kind of everyday Iron Age life. In Mexico, there's a incredibly ancient set of pyramid structures that are so old they were rediscovered by the Aztecs. And the Aztecs, when they and they are absolutely enormous, and very little is known about this this society. In fact, the the name of the is is purely just the Aztec names for them. We don't have there's no there's no real record of it. But yeah, the place is called Terra Terra Can, but that's just what the 
what the Aztecs called it. But they, when they found it, they just decided, okay, this is a city that was made by the gods and abandoned. And that was kind of the only parallel I could, I could think of. But so to answer your question, a long way around, it feels like a very rich mythology to me. But because whereas I guess a normal mythology will create an awful lot out of very little, it has so much to draw from that it becomes almost sort of over associative. There's almost too many conflicting strands within like it's overly rich i suppose because it just ha- it has to attempt to fit so much information into something coherent that it's constantly sort of bursting at the seams to have imagined what that would be like was a real achievement of the book to to imagine what the society would have how it would have come to terms with certain things quite a clever thing for russell hoban to have done to present one thing which which is all meaning uh, from the inside and which is all corruption of meaning from the outside. It's, it's fascinating, I think. But yeah, I did, I did want to talk a little bit about what I would call Ridley's religious experiences. They do feel like that to me. I'm thinking of a, a couple of things, you know, for instance, this moment around the ruins of Canterbury Cathedral where um, he has another vision of something that he calls green vine, which I think is quite clearly a sort of corrupted form of the green man maybe well certainly the the best article that i read on uh, on ridley walker is by david heisman and it's called hope of a tree in ridley walker and it's originally published in this journal christianity and literature i was really taken with this article in a way that doesn't often happen i really recommend it but heisman he traces some of the ways in which imagery is transformed not just in ridley walker but within the christian tradition itself he he points to this example of jacobus de varane who wrote a life of adam and in it he claimed that when adam died there grew out of his mouth a tree the grains of which made the same cross that christ was crucified on and he traces this conflation between the tree of knowledge and the cross but also this connection with the figure of green vine one thing i found out about this figure of the green man which i didn't know before is that i thought it was very specifically a part of english folklore but it apparently spans the world and there are examples of it found in iraq and egypt and borneo and all over the place that developed completely independently yeah it's also worth saying i guess that the green man is quite often featured in church carvings and it's likely that when ridley encounters this image he's supposed to be encountering a a wooden carving from the ancient ruins of canterbury cathedral he's standing in the ruins of canterbury where we're told there'd been this power ring and he has this vision of stone men and it reads like this they're lying on the ground trying to talk only there's no sound there's green vines and leaves growing out of their mouth them vines getting thicker and pulling the sides of the mouth wide and the leaves getting bigger and curling round the head vines growing out of their mouth vines and leaves growing out of the nose holes and the eyes and then breaking the stone man's face apart back into earth again that phrase back into earth again jumped out at me a little bit because the green man is regarded as a symbol of rebirth and 
fertility in most cultures, although there are quite disparate readings of the image of the green man. But I thought it was quite a difficult thing to know exactly in which way Ridley's vision represents a, a turn away from the desire to rebuild society by gaining scientific knowledge because this is the sort of position that the vision this revelation leads him to i'll just read this section of uh, ridley walker as well back then i've been thinking on the power of the two and the one and the high power what been rushing round the power ring time back way back my mind been all busy with mindy thinking thinking who we're going to do what and how I might put something together before someone else done it. Now I didn't want nothing of that. I didn't know what the connection were with that face in my mind. Only I know it the face were making me think different. I weren't looking for no high power no more. I didn't want no power at all. I didn't want nothing with that yellow boy stone no more. Green vine were the name I put to that face in my mind. I could feel something growing in me. It were like a green sea surging in me. It were saying, lose it saying, let go, saying, the onlyest power is no power. I don't know how you felt about this passage, Rob. You know, it turns out to be the the right way to turn, given, you know, what comes about when good Pali puts the the formula together of, of gunpowder and, and ends up destroying himself. What I find difficult to reconcile is the image of rebirth, specifically with this turn against progress. Do you think it's that society should rebuild itself organically uh, as opposed to trying to stretch itself by reconstructing this ancient power and force of the former society or is it that they shouldn't attempt to recreate the past at all but live on sort of harmonious terms with the world in a sort of kind of hippie-ish way? (laughs) I think what is such a obviously such a draw of the book is that nothing is very clear and that it's um you know it's very difficult to say oh this is actually what's what's meant but this is i guess when earlier i was talking about intention this is perhaps what i was thinking of is that this moment for me it wasn't so much about relinquishing of power or you know being somehow subservient or doing whatever but perhaps a imagining that he's imagining like a, a new society wouldn't be shaped by this constant quest for power and that yeah the the idea of the questing for the high power before someone else gets it this this constant battle to be the most powerful that perhaps this was something something Ridley felt but it's quite evident in the text that there are those who are trying to push technology forward and kind of Mm. lift this society out of out of its current state push towards you know what came before but that they're in no way ready to do it and i don't even think that in terms of the kind of society they live in is necessarily even a bad thing or that's what's being got at but it's yeah for me it's the it's the intention whether it's the ministry attempting to hold power over even more so than it does over over the kind of like small farmsteads in its kind of grasp of technology that will then be used as a tool of suppression rather than you know to keep it to keep these farms and these fences in check it's really open for interpretation i think it's what makes this book so interesting is that i would be very hard pushed to say oh yeah that's exactly what's going on here but i do think that it's interesting that the figure that inspires this revelation is a very distinctly pagan one mm. You know, this is like a image of 
like vegetation cult or fertility, yeah. uh, you know, a worship of fertility. And it seems to me at this point a kind of direct turn against against the user story, even what it represents, which is something more akin to like monotheism or something in in modern terms. Yeah, well, I suppose the user the user story is is simultaneously a warning and a preservation, you know, a warning of what happened, but also a preservation of of this kind of glimmer of a society that was, which then, for characters like Goodparley, remain this kind of golden age that one day perhaps humanity will be able to re reclaim whereas yeah definitely there's in in this kind of trance that ridley has inspired by this green man figure there's no warning there it's more that he he feels some some other way of, of being or there's another way of holding himself it's really hard to pick apart though i think but i think absolutely you're you're right that that's a completely pivotal moment in the book and it's it's hard to know exactly what's going on because well because it does it does proceed you know the decision to not tell user stories anymore but mm. pick up this even more ancient tradition of punch and judy show which is a curious really curious thing i don't think we can get away with not talking about because uh yeah, you know no, how, however <laughs> however difficult i i find it to to really understand what why it turns to that towards the end yeah. i think we we need to talk about it a little bit I feel for me it's completely interlinked with the with the idea of storytelling and the intersection of of myth and oral history and the way that actually that is the primary method of communication and like laying down of information is through very verbal transmission that even even though Ridley tells us repeatedly that he's writing the writing is in the mode of a direct verbal telling and this idea of telling is obviously very very present in the book the punch and duty really fits in to that in terms of a very weird uh non like non-written improvised and not static and i did it like a really brief bit of reading about the the history of punch and judy i don't know if you did the same at all a little bit yeah kind of the yeah the history that it comes out of um the Commedia dell'arte is it yeah Commedia dell'arte and then the neapolitan puppetry which then comes to england but I think as a as an example of forms and stories moving through geographies as well as through history is a really great example because it's you know by the time it comes to London and by the time you know it's still being practiced today sort of seven six seven hundred years old now I think from its original and that it's changed and its meanings changed depending on on geographies and, and specific social things so an amazing picture of a World War Two Punch and Judy show where the the devil is replaced by a Hitler puppet oh wow yeah so it's this uh so in that respect it really ties in for me with how this kind of information transmission and and the way things are passed on Uh, that's a brilliant reading i think rob i was just going to say the only sort of issue i have with it is perhaps the way that it's presented in in this book in that you know in the in the book's parlance it's very much not blipful right (laughs) 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's described as something different to, to a user story in terms of being pure entertainment rather than carrying any kind of deeper meaning exactly. It's in, it's in specifically those terms that it's um, set against, you know, the tradition of user telling. But I was wondering, because it's that said by Good Parley, and mm. I was sort of wondering to what extent that's purely his reading and that isn't the reason, although we're never told or never, you know, explained, that isn't the reason that Ridley then takes it up and, and takes it further. Maybe he sees it as something more than, than purely entertainment. It's very hard hard to know. And it completely ties in with the ending of the book where it seems to cause a huge amount of, um, I don't know, <laughs> real kind of like angry emotion amongst amongst the people. I, I suppose also that, you know, for Ridley, it represents something quite different for him because it's almost embedded within everything else. The the sort of story is something a bit like the Excalibur myth or something like that. He's digging in this dump and when he puts his hand into the dirt, it goes straight into a punch puppet. And it's almost like he's the the chosen one or he was supposed yeah, to find yeah, it yeah. or something. So it already has very specific significance for Ridley and you know he won't let Mm. go of it so I think that's yeah I think that's right what you're saying but it's also I wonder whether it's even something as simple as suggesting that the um the link with this time way back is actually a, a a link and an evolving link with its with its traditions and with its history rather than a link with its technology mm-hmm. and perhaps that's something worth preserving and worth continuing with the 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 thing with the punch puppets i also sort of wonder for me it felt like the one bit where Russell Hoban's American, or not specifically American, but non-native relationship changes how this is seen slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What well, do you mean because of the controversy surrounding Punch and Judy, or is that not what you Well, mean? yeah, slightly, that maybe it's, it's kind of almost like a stand-in for this bit of folk culture that still exists. Yeah. The thing that really stuck in my head in terms of Punch and Judy, there's an artist, Susan Hiller, who's made this video, like a three-screen, I think, video work, which is in the Tate and actually gets shown quite a bit. Uh, And it's interesting because Susan Hiller is also American and she makes this work about Punch and Judy. And it's really amazing. It's very super saturated colour, shot originally on 16mm. And it's... um, lots of imagery and yes it's very oversaturated it's very loud it's quite brash it's quite difficult to watch but it's just lots of sort of snippets uh sometimes slowed down of a punch and judy show and she really pulls out the kind of like latent normalized violence that goes on within this show and that's yeah i guess the thing that has been seen as um obviously very very controversial and for me that that though the intricacies of that is slightly what's missing in this punch yeah because there's also i mean in terms of that obviously the violence is domestic violence the fact that i think the first victim of mr punch is his wife who he kills and then goes on this kind of murderous spree that kills everyone he comes into contact yeah yeah it's something I tried to do a bit of research on and didn't find an awful lot about. But the the complete lack of women, or almost complete lack of women in the book. Yeah, apart from a sort of wise, um, this wise old figure, Lorna, right? Yeah. Who actually I, was probably my favourite character in the book. I really yeah, liked her. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, no, she's um, she's the one of all of them that seems to have an idea of what's 
what's going on. But yeah, it's interesting in that in that respect. It's really difficult to know why that's the case. And perhaps this is the important point of it, is that society has reverted to one that's um, very, very hierarchical and certainly very patriarchal that women have mentioned obscurely that they can have this position as has been the way in tradition of this kind of wise woman come witch but otherwise they are just described as the the wives and the mothers and that's you know it doesn't even describe their day-to-day routines they're certainly not out there digging or, or foraging yeah there doesn't even seem to be like a home structure exactly no <laughs> uh, so so maybe it's like supposed to be sort of com- communal living or something yeah it certainly seems like they have this one this one place where they eat their meat but i was just going to say that perhaps the the point is that in this uh, pagan dreamscape of of uh, the the green man ridley begins to imagine a world not shaped by those power structures how exactly that then ties into his decision to tour with a punch show is very difficult to understand <laughs> Oh, Sam. Yeah? Um, we haven't given it a sh- shared rating. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, oh, gosh. Shared rating, yeah, yeah. So you go first, go on. What's your shared rating for Ridley Walker? I think I might give it nine out of ten. Nine shirts. This is a very, very solid nine, isn't it? It's quite clearly. Yeah. Does that make it number one on the shared scale so far? Oh. <laughs> we'll be doing, sh- we'll doing our shirts rating when we read at twilight they return no no this began it began oh, much okay. later well, then i think it then i think it does yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay ridley walker currently at top spot on the, the strangeness <laughs> rating <laughs> yeah we hope you've enjoyed this episode of shirts podcast if you have any questions or comments about our conversation please write to us at shirtspodcast at gmail.com can also follow us on instagram or twitter and if you like the show please leave us a review on itunes thank you for listening and we'll see you next time shirts podcast is part of the holdfast network